Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation and sponsored by Allegan. If you're experiencing pain after a stroke, you're not alone. Pain is very common and it can start while the body is healing, but it can also stick around long term and when it does it makes daily life difficult and it can wear you down over time but even though it can be hard to get rid of pain you can still do something about it and in this episode we're going to talk about ways to reduce your pain levels and improve your quality of life we'll be speaking to physiotherapist and researcher brendan haslam about the neurological causes of pain and the treatment of upper limb pain and we'll talk to occupational therapist simone russell from stroke line but first we're lucky to have young stroke survivor and author emma g Emma is also an occupational therapist, but since her stroke, she's become an inspirational speaker who presents on person-centered care and resilience. She's also written a book about her stroke journey. It's called Reinventing Emma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, I mentioned that you've written a book all about your experiences, but I guess, could you just give us a brief overview of your stroke story? So I was uh, working full-time as an occupational therapist. When I was 24, I was um, diagnosed with the malformation in my brainstem. And in removing that, I actually had a um, stroke and a hemorrhagic stroke and went into a coma. And so then therefore woke up with um, quite a few deficits including pain, chronic pain and underwent quite a few years of rehabilitation. So that was 11 years ago now. 11 years, that is quite a while. Pain has been uh, a major challenge for you uh, yeah. in your time. Yeah. Um, has it changed much over the 11 years? Definitely with um, reflection it's um it's definitely something that it's been very prevalent over a decade now and um but it is something that as time has gone by and with experience I've learned what my body is telling me and what strategies do work for me and it definitely has not just been um adapting to my new life as a stroke survivor but also really factoring in more of a holistic approach and being mindful of the emotional impacts that pain does really present you with being able to accept where I was at and what I could do about that. Okay so what sort of pain have you had and what does it feel like? So when I when I woke from my coma it was just really burning hot like skidding on hot concrete so intense that I didn't want to move my body and um, I found it really difficult having worked in pain management as an occupational therapist thinking I knew you know I knew what to do and I didn't I didn't understand fully why a lot of my own patients would not use limbs and would cradle in limbs and avoid doing activities and suddenly when I was experiencing that pain I realized how how debilitating it was and that I had to try and move beyond that and um really difficult thing but yeah so it went from that um a high level of pain which really clouded everything I did and really impacted what how I went about activities um gradually over the years learning that it was not going out going away and I wasn't going to be reading it I came to a more um 
I guess, way of doing activities that help me manage my pain a lot better and working out that in my circumstance, medication wouldn't help. But all that was trial and error and also educating those around me about how they could help me. So, yeah, many different strategies I've used um, and it took me a while to work out what helped and what didn't. Right. So the you mentioned that you've got activities that help you. What kind of things do you do that you find help? So because I, um, my balance was really affected from my stroke, I couldn't tolerate a lot of the, med- a lot of the medications as I would sort of domino my balance. Because I, from my, my case, didn't touch my pain, I commenced doing um, swimming and doing yoga, which I do now. Most days I'll do yoga or swimming, or if I can't, if I'm travelling or I can't get out for some reason, I just do meditation, so mindfulness and um, really doing everything I can um, to ensure that I'm, I'm sort of, I can do all I can do to manage it. Um, so I guess as well as these things that you do that help improve the pain, uh, you said that there are some things you find that um, bring it on or make it worse. What kind yes. of things do you think triggers it? it? took me years to work out, but I now definitely know that if I'm, a huge drop in temperature really throws me. My body interprets every sensation, I think, as pain. So if it's a hot rail, rather than get a, I can't feel temperature. So if I'm touching it and I get a pain response, so like electric shock up one arm, which is probably a good thing, anyway. Um, if I'm too tired, if I'm um, stressed, if I'm um, basically... I don't have balance in my life. Everything, my sleep goes, my pain goes up. So definitely every single aspect of my life is probably a contributor if it's out of balance. Okay. I guess that comes back to what you were saying before about accepting it and not letting it stop you because in these circumstances, clearly you have to do something to get yeah, back in balance. Definitely. And I think I always had the mindset um, throughout my recovery that I needed to rid my pain before I could get on with life. You know, many people I meet and who have chronic pain do go about their days thinking that They've got to find an answer. They've got to fix it. But I think for me, with time, I learned that rather than putting all my energy into fixing it, and I had to accept that it was there and that I could still function, I just had to acknowledge it and travel with it rather than let it sort of dictate yeah. where I went in life. So learning ways, and it took me ages to really... Um, except that it wasn't a sudden realisation. I had to practice it and live that way. But like everything with practice, it did. Um, and does, I know, going for a swim early is hard the time, but I know I'll gain from it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I guess, uh, is there any other advice then that based on this that you would give to other stroke survivors who may be experiencing chronic pain? 
I think there's so many um, things I could say about it, but I think one of the huge importance in is in educating others around you to support you through it because I guess invisible deficits like pain, it's really hard for you and others particularly to really understand. And I know people in my life around me, my close thoughts, know that if my pain is not um, managed properly, everything else goes out. So they know, and I get more irritable, I get more tired, uh, you know, and they know that. I guess in, in letting them know and, my, and you know, in getting the support so my, um, my close family might go, okay, I'm go to the pool or go to yoga or, you know, you need, that they're, they're, um, when I'm not in a vulnerable state and my pain is really high, that they can go, yep, just do it. And that's helpful for me. So I think a lot of energy when we're grappling with managing our pain, I think goes towards saying, feeling awful, my pain's so high and everything is focused on the pain and how awful it is and how no one understands and it only isolates us more. So I think, you know, ways instead being proactive and going, yep, this is how I can control it rather than let it control me. Thank you for that. Now, I'll ask you to stick around while we speak to our other guests. Um, but in the meantime, if anyone listening out there wants to find out more about Emma's story, you can purchase her book called Reinventing Emma. And it can be purchased in paperback and ebook format at her website, which is emmag.com. That is Emma hyphen G, G double E, I should say, it's felt, com. The book is $29.99. And if you use the code RE2017NSF at the checkout, you will receive free shipping within Australia. Uh, thanks again, Emma. Thank you. Setting goals is crucial to stroke recovery. Goals can be as simple as walking to the letterbox to check the mail or bigger goals like getting back to work. Enable Me has a unique tool where you and your carer or family can plan what you want to achieve, track how you are progressing and celebrate your successes. You can also connect with other people who set goals similar to yours and challenge or inspire each other. You can even set up a blog to write down how you are feeling and share your own story. And don't forget, our professionals from Stroke Client can help with personalized and confidential advice to help you grow stronger after stroke. Visit enableme.org.au. Now, our next guest is Brendan Haslam. Brendan is a physiotherapist who specializes in pain after stroke. He is a faculty member of the Neuroorthopedic Institute and he is currently doing his PhD at the Flory Institute in Melbourne on the neurological causes and possible treatments for upper limb pain. Thank you for joining us, Brendan. Thanks, Chris. Now, um, pain after stroke, it does come in different forms. We've heard a bit about uh, Emma's experience, but what are the, what are the main types of pain that people might uh, have? Okay, so, th- so the main types of pain, I think, you know, officially we, we tend to sort of turn them into that sort of coming from the tissues, so where um, it's the, the normal pain that we sort of associate in, in response to injury. So where there's tissue damage, the signals, and, and this is sort of referred to as nociceptive pain, where they, they talk about sort of danger in the tissues. The, the other, which is sort of a, a complicating factor with stroke, is, is more the term neuropathic, where because of, of damage to the nervous system, that the actual processing of the information that is coming in is processed in a slightly different way. So those messages can be interpreted differently and, and then 
can, for some people, really prime them to regard it as, as higher danger signals coming in and then more likely to experience pain. Um, and realistically, with a lot of people sort of ongoing post-stroke, um, we're really dealing with, with contributions from both types, both from the tissues and from this sort of altered processing. Okay. And there are, other, are there other complications as well? Things I'm thinking of things like spasticity uh, and subluxations and those sort of stuff where you get that kind of pain from changes in body limbs or... Yeah, absolutely. And, and post-stroke, we know that for a, a lot of people, their, their awareness of, of their body parts and that sort of body ownership is affected as well. And that certainly can be a contribution with regards to people going on to develop pain. Spasticity can sort of, you know, lots of muscle spasm can, um, I guess, get firing from the t- Issues a little bit more. Um, it's it's safe, but it, the the signal is very very strong. Um, and the interesting thing with with subluxations of shoulders, which are obviously quite sort of common post stroke, all of the thinking originally was that shoulder pain was classically because of this subluxation of shoulders. The link between that isn't isn't actually as strong as what we first thought. There's a lot of people out there with subluxed shoulders who don't experience pain, and a lot of people that experience pain who who don't have a subluxation. So it's not a hard and fast rule. It's it's really a matter of looking at each person and their individual contributions and then trying to work out what are the things that are contributing to that person responding in, in the way um, where they're experiencing pain. Okay. I'll, I'll just throw in a quick a quick plug there for our own podcast. We did a podcast um, uh, a few months ago on spasticity. So people can go to our website at naableme.org.au and, and track down that one if you want to find out more about spasticity in particular. But I guess I want to I want to ask you more, Brendan, about this um, this neuropathic pain, um, which is caused by things like by the stroke itself and its effects on the nerves and the brain. Is there a particular part of the brain, a particular type of damage that is involved? Um, look, it would be great if we could put it down as something as as straightforward as that. Um, classically, the thinking of of the thalamus, which is sort of a bit of a, a gateway of of processing the sensory information coming from the body to the brain, was was considered to be the 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 real cause of of this neuropathic pain or this central pain post stroke. Again, the the thinking has now needed to shift a little bit, and while having having sort of a damage to the thalamus or a lesion to the thalamus certainly increases the the chance of some Someone experiencing this ongoing pain. Um, again, there are there are plenty of people out there with thalamic sort of lesions who who don't experience pain, and not everyone who whose lesion is outside of the thalamus necessarily experiences pain or not. So having the thalamus involved and and the pathways that go through there certainly is a a factor that makes someone more likely, Um, but it's not a hard and fast rule. We did put a call out to our listeners for for questions for this podcast, uh, and we had quite a few responses from people saying they had leg pain. Um, I know, though, that you specialise in, in arms and shoulders and that sort of thing more. Are there particular parts of the body that are more affected than others, do you think? Um, look, actually, this is something that is, is pretty well researched. There's there's lots of research out there saying how much of a problem pain is post-stroke. Um, so there's lots of these sort of incident studies and overwhelmingly the most common pain symptom post-stroke is with shoulder and, and upper limb pain in general. But really, any of us can experience pain in, in any part. So it, it really depends on, on things. I, I know the, through Enable Me, there's been a lots of sort of leg discussions. Mm. Um, and, and that's a very significant sort of part. But the upper limb is actually much more common with okay. regards to that. But also, people can experience multiple sort of areas with, with pain. Okay. So... Um, yeah, as a general rule, the, the shoulder is the, the classic sort of first one, but the incidence of, of other areas is, is very common, and we just take each one on its merit. Okay. Um, now, 
so we're talking about, I suppose, uh, pain that can be caused by something that's happening in the in the brain itself. Um, it doesn't really, I guess, follow from that that it's all in your head. However, uh, it does seem like there is this relationship between pain and people's mood. And we've heard from Emma that when she's uh, her life is out of balance, when something is not right um, with stress or something like that, then that could cause pain as well. Um, is there a cause and effect relationship, do you um, think, between these things? There's there's definitely a relationship there. Um, I, I guess just to jump on on this idea of, of it's all in your head, mm. um, I think is a really a, a really dangerous sort of thing to say. I, th I think certainly the experience of pain is is created by the brain based on the information that is that is coming into it. So if the information is coming in and is processed in a way where there is um, an idea of, of danger to those various body parts, then it's a logical conclusion to, to sort of then for someone to experience pain. When we start to go into things like mood, um, there's, it's really well detailed actually that people with, with low mood um, in, in chronic pain generally, sort of outside of the stroke population, there's a strong, strong association with, with low mood and, and ongoing chronic pain. If one causes the other, um, it can worth, work both ways. What we do know is that having chronic pain is is not good. It's it's not fun, and it's therefore it's it's quite reasonable that people would go on to you know for some cases experience depression. Also, we know that those with depression have a higher likelihood of of developing ongoing pain. I think one of the the big things to understand with regards to to low mood is that the the chemical balance in the brain starts to starts to change. So from a, a release of endorphins or or happy hormones or or things like that, lots of, of different sort of chemicals they are produced when people are actively engaged in meaningful activities and particularly in enjoyable activities. If that is reduced, then that chemical balance starts to change. But also that chemical balance is really important as a way of of quietening down some of the information that's coming in from the body. So in, in low mood states, we tend to lose that ability to quieten down some of the information. So, so that information coming in from the body is perceived in that sort of louder sort of state and, and more threatening. So we really need to engage in these meaningful activities, as Emma was saying. Okay. So with these kinds of pain then, what, what, sort, of, um, what sort of things can people do about it? Um, in in looking at you know what what to do with regards to pain, Emma really hit it on the head. Um, it it needs to be holistic. We can't just take a single sort of approach. We need to look at at things across the board. First of all, we need to um, assess to make sure that there hasn't actually been tissue damage. Okay, stroke survivors like like any of us can suffer injuries and sprained ankles and, and various things. So we still need to look at that to exclude that that hasn't happened. Then it is about assessing what's going on and what are the different contributions that are going on. But from a treatment perspective, looking to educate someone, give them trying to develop an understanding of what triggers it, what, what is more comfortable, looking at a psychological component, so getting people engaged in tasks like meditation, mindfulness, um, yoga, combining the physical sort of things as well, and engaging in meaningful physical activities so that we get we get the system primed to be able to to take on more, okay? Mm. Help with mood, help with some of this production of other other hormones. But then there are some specific physical sort of strategies that we can we can also sort of look at now and some of the this idea of the, the sensory information being processed slightly differently. What we're seeing is that um, 
in in situations there's some medication studies that are going on in Europe where where the the sensory system has been shown that the better the sensory system is the the more effective some of the medications are so we can start to tailor things and we need to look at addressing the sensory system to try and get get everything going as well as it can so it can tell the difference between hot and cold and it's not so threatened by some of these other things which if it doesn't understand it has a much higher threat value look i'm going to ask you some about some of the techniques that, that you've used in your your own practice but just so some of the things that people might turn to initially we're looking at People talk about say about medications mm-hmm. and those sort of things. Do generally are there painkillers that and you mentioned themselves are painkillers and things that can work or is it not the path to go down for this kind of pain? I mean, look, most of the research that is out there is looking at medication studies. Yeah. Um, and certainly in in chronic pain in general, there there's a shift in medications to go away from those classical sort of opioids and things like that to look at more medications that look to quieten down the nervous system, and that's the same with regards to to pain post-stroke. So there are medications out there that unfortunately have been named by their first use, so anticonvulsants and antidepressants, that seem like they're addressing something else, but that have been shown to have effect with regards to pain. Unfortunately, many people post-stroke, just like Emma's saying, have, have difficulty tolerating those medications because they tend to quieten down the whole system and can leave people quite fatigued and and different things like that. So for some people, these medications can be really effective at quietening down the system, helping with the processing of that information. But we need to be mindful of, of the side effects for some of those people as well. Okay. Um, how about other things people might, um, I suppose they've got a pain in their leg, for instance, or in their arm, they might think about having a massage of those muscles. Is that yeah. any use to that? Uh, um, look, in, in ongoing pain states, so in chronic pain, we know that um, massage, things like things like that, that can quieten down the tissues and, and use of heat can be really helpful in providing short-term relief. Okay. Um, for that longer term effect, we need to actually um, make sure that we engage the person and that we get the brain and, and their nervous system to not only hear information coming in, but to do something with it. So whereas massage can is or, or use of heat is, is sort of a passive thing, people sort of lie there, what we'd be looking at is that maybe use of, of massage or, or heat can produce, produce a really nice short-term effect, but we'd then want people to engage in starting to do some of those acti- in other activities as well um, to start to try and, and change the system and, and activate that active sort of system that we need to be able to sort of self-regulate and quieten down the information. Okay. Uh, Emma, I believe you have something that you want to ask. I just um, want to ask Brendan, there was a, in my experience uh, with my pain, you were speaking before about the prevalence of upper limb pain more than lower limb pain Mm -hmm. in stroke studies. I myself have more, it's all left-sided pain, but I found that over the decade or so I've dealt with my pain that it has actually shifted. Yeah. So whereas once worse in my lower limbs, it's now sort of a lot worse in my left hip 
is it is it fair to say that that happens? It does. Absolutely, it's it's actually quite common that people's symptoms change with regards yeah. to things as they're doing things because also their activities change. Yeah. They engage in different things and they utilise different body parts in different ways. So particularly when people aren't, aren't walking as much to start with, they're not getting as much information coming in and yeah. using that information in in that sort of output of different movements. So we we know that as people's activities change and, and what they engage in, that it is actually really common for yeah. for their symptoms, just like their movement performance to change and, and improve, we know that their symptoms can, can change in, in one way or another. Um, and this is actually really common in in chronic pain for for non-stroke populations as well is that we start to get more of a, a spread of pain to include yeah. other surrounding areas and, and other sides even sometimes and depending on the activities the 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 dangerous sort of system and and that experience of pain will will sort of shift yes. based on on what's being engaged in. I think in. as Chris said before is there something that you would um, recommend to other listeners um I think for me as a stroke survivor, hearing knowing that things were going to change or that I would adjust was really important in my recovery. If I'd have known that um, when two years into my recovery, I was lying on the ground and couldn't even lift a pillow because my my pain was so high, and went to look into so many other um, things like treatments like deep brain stimulation to help manage that, which I didn't go ahead with. If I'd have known that it would settle and that I could do more activity and it would change, that would have been really helpful at the time. And and I think this is this is a crucial sort of thing. When we're looking at being effective therapists and, and health professionals engaging in, in sort of the area of pain, the, the most important thing that we can do to start with is educate yes. about yeah. what is going on. If it, The more that it is a mystery, the more scary it yeah. is and the more unknown and that we lack control, we, we lack the potential yeah. to have control. So the fundamental thing that is coming through in lots of different groups with chronic pain is the most effective thing is education first. And even just with providing education, what we see is then some of those other therapies like physical therapies and psychological strategies and medications then start to become more effective Yes, because people understand what they're trying to do and that we're looking for that sort of change over time. So the the key thing is this understanding and, and that's what we really need to be getting the message out, which is why I'm so excited about today. Well, I suppose this is a good time to talk about some of your own research, uh, Brendan, because this is helping to expand our understanding yeah, and our knowledge um, for um, survivors as well as their health professionals. Uh, what, what kind of things are you working on at the moment? Really, I think um, there's there's two main studies that, that I'm certainly involved with. One is is actually a, a sensory training study that's that we're running here in, in Melbourne at the Flory Institute um, with people with, with sensory deficits, particularly in their upper limb and looking at um, the influence of, of training that sensation to be better for people to be able to pick out better different 
preferences and things like that um, and see how that affects just the sensory function but also with regards to their pain. And the exciting thing with that is that we're able to provide a treatment intervention for it and it's the effect is measured at periods over time which also includes um, the use of functional MRIs. So we can actually see the changes in brain activity as they're performing different things and see how good they are at getting, using those particular bits but also at their ability to maybe quieten down some of the other areas because we know that in pain it's a bit like a firework sometimes with the whole area sort of lighting up. So that's a really exciting study that we're doing sort of here. Um, and another study that um, that we're sort of leading is an, is an online study, um, really looking at, as, as Emma was saying, a lot of the treatments were, were based on trial and error. Let's try this to see if it works. Let's try this to see if it works and find some things like that. What this study is, and it's an online one, so I urge anyone with, with stroke, sort of with pain or without pain to participate, is trying to identify the different contributions that are going on and start to develop profiles of, of psychological sort of um, contributions, sensory contributions, but also the ability of, of body ownership and being able to recognize um, different areas of, of their body and, and start to own that um, so that we can ultimately, as oh, sorry, as well as med their medication use, so that we can ult ultimately start to identify um, actually which potential treatments might be more appropriate for a particular person based on their symptoms. Um, there's been some really nice research just published sort of about a month ago looking at the use of imagery techniques. So um, mental imagery, sort of this, this motor imagery and use of things like Mirabox and stuff like that. So that's sort of giving us another avenue that we've been using for a while, but we still need to, we need to be able to identify who is going to respond best to what so that it's not just all trial and error and and this is really repli replicating similar stuff that's being done in medication studies where they're looking to develop these profiles so that's that's a really exciting thing but to get effective sort of of that we need we need some pretty big numbers to yep. be able to make those comparisons and really develop this sort of affected targeted strategies that we're after Okay, that's interesting that it is so uh, so individual and, and so targeted. Um, so obviously we're not saying that anything we talk about here is a good treatment. Everyone you know, is different and, and will need a different approach. But can you explain a bit more about some of this imagery um, techniques and the mirror box? What, what does that mean and how does that help with pain? So um, I, I guess the mirror box is, is the classic example that gets a lot of media media attention and it's been used in TV series and in various sorts of things and it, it was initially utilised for um, for people with phantom limb pain who didn't have who had a, a missing limb but is continued to experience pain in that part the use of the mirror is actually giving visual information where the person sees that that limb is still intact they see the reflection of the other side and actually we we know that that activates the area of the brain associated with the missing part so in, in essence we're really trying to train to train the brain get into that area in ways that would otherwise be quite difficult and try and improve the the ownership and the organization of that so that it's able to process again this information and more towards a normal normalized sort of situation so there's some really logical sort of references with regards to to stroke in this thing in in this sort of situation not many people can go straight into mirror box therapy a lot of people find that quite challenging and can be a bit overwhelming so there are a number of stages of, of image that we can do along the way so that they potentially can get the, a better effect from, from the mirror box treatment as well. So we're trying to really marry the, the imagery techniques 
um, you, as I've just discussed, along with the sensory techniques to try and improve people's sensory abilities to pick the information out. So all of it is about getting creating better body ownership of of the affected area in order to be able to understand it, utilize the information better and better better responses, better experiences. Okay, and that recognizing that parts of what that is part of your your study that you're looking for people to take Absol- part in the survey? Absolutely. So v- very much designed to to complement some of the other studies that are going on, um, really to to be able to target, okay, who's going to respond best to what? Okay. Well um, we will put more information on how to take part in that project on the uh, on our website, um, Great, but you can you. find it on, I believe it's on the Neuro Orthopedic Institute um, website at uh, research.noigroup.com. Is that correct? That's right. That'll take you, there's a link there that will go to the stroke laterality study, which is the one that we're doing. But yeah, thank you for putting it on the website. That'll be a, a really nice thing. When you or someone you love has a stroke, you are instantly bombarded with a whole lot of medical terms, and it's pretty hard to take them all in. It's like learning a whole new language. To help you, we've created Strokeosaurus, a glossary of stroke terms. It's an A to Z guide of the language used around stroke. From atrial fibrillation to Webster Pack, it explains key terms in simple language. You can access it on your computer, smartphone, or tablet at enableme.org. Finally today, we have Simone Russell, an occupational therapist and one of the voices that you can hear on the Stroke Foundation's Stroke Line. Thank you for joining us once again, Simone. Thanks, Chris. Uh, We've heard from Brendan as a physiotherapist, but you are an occupational therapist. Um, What can OTs like yourself, what role do you have in helping people manage pain? Yeah, sure. I mean, we like to work, obviously, as a team anyway, but um, as an occupational therapist in particular, uh, we will look at the whole person. So as um, both Brendan and Emma have touched on, a really holistic approach looking at really I guess how the pain is impacting on their day-to-day activities and their quality of life um, also their mood that's been touched on already and looking at some of the things that have been mentioned you know the location of the pain is it an acute pain issue or is it something that is going to be a longer term neuropathic pain you know what are the triggers is it changing you know temperature as Emma has experienced is it um, you know fatigue stress um, all sorts of different factors might come into what might trigger the pain and really working with the individual to come up with appropriate strategies and also a routine that works for them. And I think Emma's really touched on what works for her and given a really good example of how that um, has helped her to manage her pain, but to also live a better quality of life um, rather than letting the pain rule her. We will also implement strategies that um, uh, Brendan has touched on. So that might be mirror box therapy. It also has a large component of education, really informing the patient about what's happening at a brain level. Um, with the pain um, perception and also looking at other strategies that might be relevant for that person. Now, it sounds like one of the challenges, though, is getting someone to to help you with the pain, um, someone who understands how it works. And there seems to be, from the, from the questions we've had, um, a lot of people have trouble explaining to their health professionals what they're going through and getting that understanding. How can people find someone to help them with their pain? Yes, look, it is a really common um, inquiry we get to Strokeline and also on Enable Me and through our Facebook page. Um, I think that um, there is still a lot more education that's needed around pain, particularly in the area of stroke. And I would say, yes, GP is often a good starting place, but if you're not finding that you're getting anywhere, if you are still involved with a rehabilitation team or if you have a rehabilitation physician 
surgeon or, or doctor that you're seeing, they can be also a really good starting point. If you're a little bit further down the track after your stroke and pain is continuing to be a concern for you and you're not getting anywhere with your um, current doctor, I would look at contacting Pain Australia have a great list of pain management clinics. You can get a referral to a pain management clinic. You can also call Strokeline and we can help brainstorm what might be the best um, option for you specifically depending on your location, your state, what services are around you. Often, you know, even in smaller um, country areas, there may be someone that's well known for working with um, people with uh, pain or at least working with people after stroke that we can at least get them linked into. So the people are out there. It's just a matter of finding Exactly. Them. That's right. Also, this is a real priority for us is educating health professionals, allied health, medical, nursing across the board with regards to this about um, pain in neurological conditions such as stroke. And there is now a, a more of an educational sort of push as we sort of start to roll some of that out. So hopefully that will become more and more common. It sounds like it's a rapidly developing area and there is a lot of knowledge for people to keep on tr- on top of. I think so. I, I think, um, you know, hopefully we're, we're, we're seeing an end to the, the days of um, you've got pain and you've had a stroke, sort of deal with it. Um, that's no longer a good enough answer now and, and we need to be better and we need to be able to provide advice and, and offer strategies and, and that sort of is a bit of a cop-out now, I think. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great message that I hope we hope gets across. Um, Simone, um, do you have any, what are your top tips that you would want um, Strokes of Others to take away from, from this podcast today? Yeah, look, I think that Brendan and Emma have captured a lot of the, the top tips that I would also cover with um, Stroke Survivors that call into Stroke Line. But the first one I would say is, you know, don't go it alone. I think a lot of people out there in the community living with pain feel very isolated. Um, many uh, feel misunderstood. They don't get the support perhaps from the people around them or from their doctors in some cases. They don't really feel that there's, you know, I guess a positive outcome for them. So I'd say don't go it alone, get help. And whether that's through experts working in pain and stroke management, whether that's face-to-face peer support through a peer support group and really talking to other survivors who may be experiencing pain themselves, as well as our um, online support as well. So we've got Enable Me is a great source of support. There's some fantastic conversations on there around pain and what works for different um, stroke survivors. I know, Brendan, you're also on there as well. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a range of um, supports, I guess, that I would suggest but certainly working out whether face-to-face or online support is an option, but getting that support really helps. The second one would be, which has also been touched on, is really educate yourself. So pain can be complex. um, And if you're new to stroke and you're new to pain, it's something that does require a little bit of education. There's certainly education available out there. If you, once you get the right um, access to that uh, education, it really helps you to understand and map out a pathway for you to manage the pain. And that, as I said, can be working out, you know, what's the cause of the pain, What's the type of pain I'm experiencing? Is medication an option? Are my medications working? Um, is, there, is there a study I can participate in that might actually give me some you know, extra benefits and strategies that I can use? Um, and looking at all of those strategies that we've touched on, um, in addition to medication, but yoga, mindfulness, physical exercise is really important as we've touched on, um, and some of the more psychological help, so um, cognitive behavioral therapy um, and distraction techniques, as well as um, the motor imagery and uh, mirror boxes, other options as well. So there's so many options and I think having education to work out what might be the best option for you is obviously something that's important. 
third tip is really around, um, you know, knowing what works for you. This is a touching on from, I guess, the, the second tip as well. So finding out, listening to your body, starting to notice what does work for you. And I think Emma's um, painted the perfect picture of, you know, she knows when things are out of balance that the pain also increases and that keeping that life balance is so important. Trial and error is sometimes unavoidable for, for most people in their pain journey, but we're hoping that, you know, with more evidence and research that that will become a little less, um, uh, you know, of a, a trial and error or hit and miss um, in the pain journey. But, you know, it could be different from one person to the next as well. So understanding that each um, person is individual and um, really taking that holistic approach, you know, as we've touched on sleep, even diet and what you eat, um, stress levels, all of those things come into play as well. And my last tip would really be just to be kind to yourself. Um, you know, it's not easy when um, you're faced with a stroke, first of all, but then to have pain and potentially chronic pain on top of that, um, particularly if it's debilitating. It's it's a it's a, a big challenge for a lot of stroke survivors in addition to all of the other factors that come into um, adjusting to life after stroke. So I would say be kind and compassionate to yourself and make sure you do reach out for support, whether that's through peers or through health professionals and experts in the area. Thanks, Simone. That is some excellent advice and does really fit in with uh, the stories we've heard from, from Emma and Brendan as well. Now, if anyone wants to ask further questions of Simone and our other health professionals, they can call Stroke Line on 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE, or I believe you, people can ask questions via enableme.org.au as well. Now, that's all we have time for today. If you like what you've heard, please help us out. You can give us a good rating and a review on iTunes. We'll also be holding an online chat on this topic so that you can ask your own questions. If you register as a member at enableme.org.au, you can get an email alert which will tell you when the chat will be held. And you can also find transcripts of our previous chats we've had on other topics. They're also available on the website. Thank you once again to our guests. We've had Emma G, Brendan Haslam and Simone Russell. Remember, you can buy Emma's book Reinventing Emma at her website, emma-g.com. And if you use the code RE2017NSF at the checkout, you can receive free shipping within Australia. And of course, Brendan's study, um, looking for as many participants as he can get to help him with his research. That can be found at research.noigroup.com. And we'll put a link to both Brendan's and Emma's website on our podcast page. Thank you again, Brendan and Simone and Emma. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au. The music in this podcast is Signs by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia with the support of Allegan.
At Allergan, we know every stroke is different and so is every recovery. After stroke, many people have muscle weakness and loss of movement, but you might also be experiencing tight muscles or stiffness in your arms, fingers or legs. It's called spasticity. You might have muscle spasms or uncontrollable jerky movements in your arms or legs, changes in your posture or unusual limb positions, and it can cause pain. It can be treated though. Physiotherapy or occupational therapy can help you adapt and improve your movement. There are other possibilities too, such as injections with botulinum toxin type A, electrical stimulation of the muscles, electromyograph, or EMG biofeedback, and muscle relaxing medication. What is important is to start your rehabilitation as soon as possible after a stroke, and to discuss your goals and progress with your rehabilitation team at every stage. Allegan is proud to bring you this Enable Me podcast.